You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Got your Bibles there, please go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. And we're going to be looking at a prayer today that the church prayed over 2,000 years ago. But before we dive into this prayer from the past, we're first going to take a moment to look into the future. In fact, if you are here and you know Jesus Christ, then we are going to look at your future. So here is your future, Revelation 21 up on the screen. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. This is talking about you. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So if you are here and you know Jesus Christ, this is your certain future. This is your hope. It is absolutely guaranteed. And here's what we need to be reminded of again today. How much this future cost. There was a tremendous cost in securing this eternal future for you. Look what Psalm 14 says about all of humanity up on the screen. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So there was a time in all of our lives where this described us and described our hearts toward God. We did not seek after God. We turned aside from God. We all became corrupt. And because of that, this also describes us up on the screen. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is holy. He cannot tolerate evil and wickedness, and sin. So this is our story. We were all under the judgment and the wrath of God because of our sin. So how is it then that we who did not seek after God, were not interested in God, were under the judgment of God, are now God's people? So many of us here today are God's people who have eternal life and the hope of glory. How did that happen? Well, today in Acts chapter 4, we're going to be reminded again that God's plan to save sinners like you and me is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the cost of our salvation. The cross is the cost. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 4, and here's the context. So Peter and John 
uh, two of Jesus' disciples. They've been out speaking boldly about Jesus Christ. They've been sharing with people that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the promised Messiah, and that he came to earth to make payment for sin by suffering and then dying on a cross. And when the religious leaders hear that Peter and John have been speaking boldly about Jesus in this way, they are furious because they hate Jesus Christ. They hate him. And why do they hate him so much? Well, here's why. Because Jesus told them the truth that he is the son of God. Matthew 26, up on the screen. And the high priest said to him, to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself here, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, the right hand of God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 65 up on the screen. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, they all answered, he deserves death. So the religious leaders hated Jesus Christ. They did not believe he was the son of God. They wanted him put to death and they wanted to silence all of his followers. So they arrest Peter and John. They threaten them. They tell them to stop talking about Jesus or else. And they release them. So Peter and John, they come back to God's people. They come back to the church. They explain everything that happened. And when everyone hears about this, together they all begin to pray. And what do you think they're praying for? Are they praying for, for safety? Are they praying that God would protect them from these religious leaders? That is not at all what they are praying for. Here's what they're praying for. They're praying that God would give them even more boldness because they know the greatest need of every single person in the world is to hear about Jesus and his cross. So in verse 29, they pray, they pray, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. This is how they end this prayer, by asking God for more boldness to proclaim Jesus Christ and his cross. But let's look now at how they begin their prayer. Because they don't begin by asking for boldness. In fact, they begin their prayer as so many great prayers begin. They begin their prayer with this. By worshiping God for who he is. And that leads us right to our first point, which is this, that God is sovereign over all he has made. God is sovereign over all he has made. Have a look with me now at verse 24. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. So when the church hears the story about Peter and John, they begin to pray and they call out together and they say, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign. Meaning, meaning the one who is in control of everything. The one who is in control of all the events of human history. The one who is in control of all the events of our lives. 
the one who is even in control of religious leaders who hate Jesus Christ and hate his church. God is sovereign. He is in absolute control of everything. And not only do they call him sovereign, but they also call him Lord. He is the sovereign Lord, meaning he is in control of everything, and he also has complete total, absolute authority over everything as well because he is the Lord. He is ultimate. He is preeminent. He is all-powerful and all-knowing, perfectly good, perfectly pure. He is love and light and life. He is the sovereign Lord, which also means this, that he is the creator. He is the creator. Look back at verse 24. They pray, they pray together, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, they pray, God, you are in control of everything. You have authority over everything. You made everything. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You are the sovereign Lord. You are the creator. You are all powerful. You are in control. There is none like you. This is how they begin their prayer, by exalting God, magnifying God, worshiping God for who he is. And now they continue in their prayer by worshiping God for what he has done, which leads us to point number two, which is this, that God is sovereign over all the plans of man. God is sovereign over all the plans of man. Look again at verse 24. They say, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So the church is now pointing to this fact that in the Old Testament, God described exactly what would happen to Jesus Christ hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And so they quote this example from Psalm 2. Look again at verse 25. This is a direct quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were all gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now Psalm 2 was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. And, and Psalm 2 is speaking about this future time when the Gentiles, they're raging and the peoples are all plotting and the kings of the earth and the rulers and they're all gathering together against God and against his anointed. And that word anointed there, it means God's Messiah or his Christ. So Psalm 2 is about all of these people gathering together to oppose God and to oppose his Christ. Now, why is the church quoting from Psalm 2 in this prayer? Here's why. Because they realize that Psalm 2 is all about Jesus. Look now at verse 27. This is how they're interpreting Psalm 2, verse 27. They say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So let's look a little bit closer at how the church is interpreting Psalm 2 up on the screen. So here we have uh, their direct quote from Psalm 2, and here we have their interpretation of Psalm 2. So they're praying, they're praying here, for truly in the city there were gathered, Psalm 2, 
People are gathered together. So they're gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, Psalm 2, against the Lord and against his anointed. Both Herod, Herod is a king. So we see the kings here in Psalm 2, kings of the earth. And Pontius Pilate, he's a ruler. We have the rulers here. Along with the Gentiles, we've got the Gentiles in Psalm 2, the Gentiles who are raging, and the peoples of Israel. And here we have the peoples of Israel plotting in vain. And when we see that, it's like, we stand in awe. A thousand years before Jesus was born, God revealed exactly who would be against him and what they would do to him including what all of these people together would specifically do to him. Have a look again at verse 27. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So here we see a great mystery because in verses 27 and 28, we see both human responsibility and divine sovereignty at the very same time. We see Herod, Pontius Pilate, we see the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel making real decisions to gather together to inflict violence upon Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we see that this is also what God planned to take place. So real people making real choices to do real evil. And at the same time, they are doing what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit planned to take place. In other words, man's plan was evil. God's plan is love. Man's plan is to murder Jesus Christ at the cross. God's plan is to save you at the cross. Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years before Jesus was born, puts it this way up on the screen, speaking of Jesus. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of God to crush Jesus Christ. So we can think of it like this up on the screen. All of these people, all these groups of people, they have this one problem. They, they have this problem. It's Jesus. They're all gathering together with the same problem. Jesus and so this is what they, what they plan to do to fix their problem. Man's plan is to kill Jesus. They gather together to kill him. But at the same time, as they do that up on the screen, they are actually fulfilling God's plan to save you. As man is fulfilling their evil plan to kill Jesus, to murder him, at the same time, they're actually fulfilling God's plan to save you. So hear this, God's plan to save you has always, always been the cross. Which means that first, Jesus had to walk the road to the cross. 
which involved giving himself over to being arrested in the garden, to being mocked, to being beaten, to having his beard pulled out, and then a Roman scourging, which involved being tied to a post and whipped with the equivalent of razor blades, uh, whips that were designed specifically to tear off flesh. The prophet Isaiah spoke about Jesus' appearance during his suffering and 700 years before Jesus was even born up on the screen. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, Jesus was so horrifically brutalized by the scourging that he no longer resembled a man anymore. And after that, the soldiers placed a Roman cross on his back and he carried it through the streets of Jerusalem, stumbling, falling, getting back up, staggering, struggling, all the way to Calvary, all the way to the place where he would be crucified. And when he arrived at Calvary, he gave himself over to the horror of the cross. One scholar describes crucifixion in this way, that a criminal who was crucified was essentially forced to inflict upon himself a very slow death by suffocation. When the criminal's arms were outstretched and fastened by nails to the cross, he had to support most of the weight of his body with his arms. The chest cavity would be pulled upward and outward, making it difficult to exhale in order to draw in fresh breath. But when the victim's longing for oxygen became unbearable, he would have to push himself up with his feet, releasing some of the weight from his arms and enabling the chest cavity to contract more normally. However, pushing himself upward in this way was excruciatingly painful because it required putting the body's full weight on the nails holding the feet. In some cases, crucified men would survive for several days like this in a constant state of physical agony, fending off suffocation. And keep this in mind. No one is taking Jesus' life from him. No one. No one is taking Jesus' life from him. John chapter 20, Jesus said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. Jesus came to die in your place on this cross to save you because he loves you. So he gave his hands over to be punctured. He gave his feet over to be pierced. And again, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, up on the screen. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And the soldiers lifted up the cross. And Jesus hung on that cross for three hours. 
And suddenly, darkness descended over the entire region. The Gospel of Luke says that the sun failed. And Jesus knew exactly what this meant because this is a sign of divine judgment. Something infinitely worse than physical torture is about to happen to him. And in that moment, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin. Meaning that according to the eternal plan of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in that moment, the sin of the world was transferred to Jesus Christ on that cross. And if you are here today and you are saved in Jesus Christ, then whose sin was this? All of my sin was transferred to Jesus Christ on that cross. All of my sin from my past. All of my sin from the present. All of my sin from the future was transferred to Jesus Christ as he hung on that cross. And the perfect, sinless, holy Son of God was then clothed in all the evil and vileness and wretchedness of sin. He was clothed in all of our selfishness. He was clothed in all of our pride. He was clothed in all of our idolatry and sinful anger and envy and sexual immorality and drunkenness and impurity and sin. And because he was clothed in all of our sin, God the Father then looked upon him as though he was sin. And in that moment, what Jesus had been dreading the most the reason why he had been sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, it happened. Jesus was forsaken by God. God the Father turned his face away from what Jesus had become. And the weight of that loss, the loss of the presence and the fellowship with God is catastrophic. The void that Jesus experiences in this moment is excruciating. And so in agony, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the midst of all of his suffering, the wrath of God for sin is then poured out upon him. Consider it. The presence of the Father has been stripped away from Jesus and has been replaced by the fury of his wrath. And Jesus experiences the penalty for sin. He is submerged into the wrath of God. And he begins to suffer more than anyone ever has and anyone ever will as our eternity in hell is somehow compressed down into a matter of hours and unleashed upon Jesus Christ as he hangs on that cross. This is the penalty for sin. This is what you and I deserve. This is how much God loves you. Because this is the cost of our salvation. The cross is the cost of our salvation. 
And after three hours of hell on a cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished. Meaning, sin has been finally paid for. God's justice has been satisfied so that now, all who will trust in Jesus Christ, all who will believe in him, all who will place their faith in him and his finished work on the cross for their, for their salvation on their behalf, they will be forgiven for all of their sin. They will be cleansed entirely. They will be made right with God and one day they will dwell with him forever. And so today we remember the cost of our salvation. Today we remember the cross of Jesus Christ and his love and his suffering as we now turn to the Lord's Supper. If you are here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and as the, the elements are passed down the aisle, I would ask that you just allow them to pass you by, that you just pass them along and that you would take time to observe the faith of those around you. But if you are here and you are saved in Jesus Christ, then now is the time, now is the time to deeply consider the cross, to consider the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, to let gratitude and love and worship fill your heart there are going to be verses that are up on the screen. And I would invite you, over the next five minutes or so, we're not in any rush, to meditate upon those verses. To deeply consider the cross. And then whenever you are ready, to go ahead and take the Lord's Supper. Whenever you are ready. As you've been prayerful before the Lord, as you've meditated on the cross, Whenever you are ready, take the Lord's Supper. We won't be leading it from the front today. So when you're ready, please take the Lord's Supper. At this time, I'd like to call the communion servers to please come forward. And as they do, let's pray together. So Father, I want to pray for this time right now. This time right now. That this would be a beautiful and powerful moment between each one of us and you. That as we meditate upon the cross, as we look at those verses on the screen, as we consider your suffering, as we consider the greatness of your love for us, that our hearts would truly fill with worship, truly fill with love, that we would be in awe of all that you have done for us. Thank you, Lord. Lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name.